Welcome to Constitutionally Speaking, the podcast about the United States Constitution, early American history, and political philosophy. My name is Jay Cost, and with me is my intrepid co-host, Luke Thompson. And Luke, if last time's episode was called House Party, uh, this one would be filibuster. Not as cool a name, but a very popular subject. Seems to me, Luke, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's almost as if we hear all the problems about the filibuster only when the Democrats have a trifecta. Isn't that funny? Because, you know, the the last time I remember people really complaining about the filibuster was back in 2010. And then... Uh, it got quiet for so long. And then suddenly the filibuster is once more a threat to democracy. Now, mind you, Luke, not democracy with a lowercase t. Yeah. Democracy with an uppercase t, right? The democracy. Yes, it's a, yes, the democracy as in the Democrats. But nevertheless, we are going to talk about Senate rules and procedures today, but mainly that will involve us with the filibuster. Um, and hopefully you find this to be an interesting discussion i think you probably will not have heard certainly some of the ideas that we have if you've read luke had a really interesting piece i was about a year ago a little more than a year ago i want to it say was that. it was before the election yeah I think it was, it was so it was like 18 election. 18 months ago yeah Dang, and yeah. i thought it was a really good piece i agree Thank with you. it so luke and i have some contrarian takes on the political implications of the filibuster um but to start you know we're just sort of introduce the concept of uh, house rules. We talked about that last week. Luke, in broad brushstrokes, can you paint a picture for us of what uh, the rules of the Senate are like compared to the rules of the House? Sure. Um, so I, I think that the, the important thing for people to understand, insofar as there's an underlying ontology to these rules, the House starts and stops every two years, um, both as a matter of everyone being up for re-election and also as a matter of um, its own self-understanding and in that they pass a, a novel rules package every two years. And even though those rules packages frequently look very much the same from Congress to Congress, nonetheless, they do they do vary and, and they have to pass them anew. And so by contrast, the Senate considers itself and because of the staggered terms as a, as a real matter is a continuing body. So its majorities are less ephemeral, um, except in situations when you have a closely divided Senate, such as the one we have now. Um, And as a result, uh, its rules are accretive in a way that the House rules are didactic. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if if you want to think of this in sort of highfalutin terms, um, the Senate is a whole bunch of it it likes to style itself, I should say, as a bunch of Chesterton fence fences um, in its <laughs> rules, whereas the House is is ruled with an iron fist by the mm-hmm. speaker. Um, I would say as a as a more concrete matter, the way this express gives it gives itself expression is is thus. the the House of Representatives um, has committees and it has seniors. And those things are viewed as important, although uh, less important across the parties um, than in the Senate, where the committees are much more important. The seniority that individual members accrue is much more important. And um, as a result, whereas the speaker can always crack the whip, the Senate majority leader has much less concrete power. 
Um, the Senate Majority Leader's power is comparatively attenuated and requires um, a great deal more persuasion because the Senate Majority Leader simply doesn't have that many sticks. Um, a good Senate Majority Leader rules through carrots uh, and, and, and does not have to rely on coercion because the means of coercion are few and far between. Um, Trent Lott in his, the title of Trent Lott's autobiography was Herding Cats. Yeah, which is exactly correct. Yeah. Um, now, what that means also, both because the Senate is decentralized anyway, but also because of the, the supermajority uh, filibuster rule, which we will discuss, um, is that to be an effective Senate majority leader, one has to understand the political imperatives and the psyche of individual members, not simply in one's own caucus, but also in the opposition party. You don't have to understand all of them, but it helps to understand you know, a solid fifth to half of them. Um, mm -hmm. Because if you don't understand them, it's a small enough body, people rub shoulders enough, other people in your caucus are going to, right? So, you know, whether Mitch McConnell wants to understand the thinking of, um, you know, John Tester or not, he does, but assume for the sake of argument, he doesn't. Well, guess what? Mike Rounds is going to, and Lindsey Graham is going to as well, because unlike in the House where you have territorial exclusivity, every senator shares every inch of his or her terrain with another senator. Right. And so you have geographic overlap and you have staggered terms, and those, those forces combine to mean that the Senate is a much more incestuous collegial place, depending on whether you want to put negative or positive valence on it. Um, that means policymaking uh, can happen very quickly when people get together and want to, uh, even if leadership wants to get in the way. Uh, but it also means that um, the normal course of things is much chattier, much slower, much less frenetic, um, and that uh, leadership is less able to jam things down the throat of membership. Would you say that's a sort of fair assessment, Jen? I would. And it, I think that, you know, a lot of times when people complain about the Senate, a lot of it has to do with their failure to understand the Senate on its own terms. Now, you can reject the Senate on its own terms, but, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, compared to the English House of Commons or the United States House of Representatives, the United States Senate is a terrible institution. Well, okay, but the Senate. I mean, even the name, Luke, of the Senate harkens back to the Roman Senate, which was in its ideal form, as Polybius would argue in its ideal form, you know, was the rule of the aristocrats is what it was intended to be. The rule of the wise is what the Senate was intended to be. And this is sort of what you're getting at, I think, is the way the Senate functions is intended, it works well when you have sort of this sort of wise elder statesmen and stateswomen um, talking with each other. That's what the Senate is intended uh, to facilitate. Now, that's what the rules are intended to facilitate. And I think a lot of people, you know, when the Senate doesn't do what partisans want it to do, they think, oh, well, there's something wrong with the Senate. Well, eh, maybe, or maybe there's just something right with the Senate, that the Senate function of the Senate is to have and facilitate 
deliberation and, you know, sort of creating personalized policy and political networks as a way to achieve consensus is, you know, uh, my attitude is, is that the Senate in many, many, many respects does not function very well, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah. that insofar as the Senate is stopping narrowly partisan uh, fleeting majoritarian initiatives, then that's actually exactly what it's supposed to be doing, I think. Um, and what's interesting, and so Luke, you mentioned, um, and I think this is important to bear in mind, you mentioned that the rules are continuous. The House of Representatives could reinvent itself every two years, and it would only take 218 members to do it, right? The only things in the Constitution is required is that there be a speaker. The House can completely redesign the speaker. You do anything right. that it wants. The Senate, the Senate rules are, as you said, continuous. But moreover, the Senate rules require a two-thirds majority, majority to alter. Now, they can be altered in a more narrow way, which is what's often called the nuclear option, is sort of like just ruling something as being contrary to the rules, and we'll talk about that. Um, but the, the normal course of changing the rules of the Senate requires a supermajority. And a lot of people think, well, that's not, you know, that's not very fair. That's not, you know, majoritarianism is the norm. But I don't think people realize, and, and I think this relates to the filibuster as well. I, I don't think people realize actually the role that the filibuster plays. So the filibuster, so there's, there, there is what is known as the standing rules of the Senate. And I want to say there's like 30 of them. All right. And the rule the filibuster rule is in um, rule 22. Uh, the rule 22 basically allows 16 senators to bring a cloture motion to end debate. And then um, it requires a three fifths majority of the chamber. What people don't understand is that the cloture motion is a way to limit the existing and the pre-existing prerogatives in the Senate. And the real, I think the real heart and soul of the Senate is in rule 19. So I'm gonna read this to our audience. I think probably it will be new to many of them, but rule 19 says, when a Senator desires to speak, he shall rise and address the presiding officer and shall not proceed until he is recognized. And the presiding officer shall recognize the Senator who shall first address him. So in other words, when a senator wants to speak, he has to wait until he's recognized, but he must be recognized, okay? To continue, no senator shall interrupt another senator in debate without his consent, and to obtain such consent, he shall first address the presiding officer. And no senator shall speak more than twice upon any one question in debate on the same legislative day without leave of the Senate, which shall be determined without debate. So, what that means is that senators can, for all intents and purposes, speak about any subject they want for as long as they want, as long as they are able. And it has to be the subject, they can only speak on one uh, uh, question twice a day. But if there are seven questions in a legislative day, they can speak 14 times as long as they are physically able, okay? Right. So the essence of the Senate is really couched in unlimited debate is what it's meant to do. We'll talk a little bit more about the way the Senate gets around that on a practical basis. But in this sort of, um, to add a little kind of political science-y kind of structure to this sort of Luke's idea of the House ruling with an iron fist, um, I would say that the way to understand the House of Representatives is that it organi it's organized to generate 
of what political scientists will call structure-induced equilibria. The idea is that the rules themselves impose boundaries on the range of outcomes that the House can achieve, right? We talked about that in our last um, a podcast where we said that that you know the house party leadership basically functions as a cartel to limit the outcome so you get an equilibrium or a final result that's sort of created by structure the senate really it has structures but they're much looser and they're more looser than i think people realize and we'll get to that in a minute so i like to think of the senate as not having no, achieving an equilibrium or a result, not based on structures, but on preferences. So it's not a structure-induced equilibrium, it's a preference-induced equilibrium. And the way to think about it is this, is think about the members of the Senate. The Senate's smaller and its members are all political elites. They are certainly within the realm of their individual states. They are at the upper echelons of their states, rivaled only by the governors. And in many cases, senators with long tenures, like a Pat Leahy, is more prominent and more important than whatever governor that happens to shuttle through the state of Vermont, right? And right. so these elites, I would argue, the, the Senate itself is, for better or worse, represents the political elites in the American community. Now, whether or not these elites are actually wise and we have an aristocracy, or if they're just a bunch of crooks and we have an oligarchy, that's a different issue, but they're the elites. And they all regard, and Lou was hinting at this, regardless of their political policy outcomes, they have a similar preference with regard to maintaining their place at the top of their political heaps. Right. And to maintain this political prestige requires them to do th two things. They need two things. They have to have the Senate has to be a, a place that's worth being in. So they have to be mindful of the reputation of the Senate. And they also have to have the indulgence of their colleagues. So in other words, put it this way. Senators need politically need to behave like a bunch of peacocks because that's who they are in their states. They're the big plumed sort of female birds with the great plumage they well, it's, to, it's the male it's the male peacocks that have it's the male plumage. yeah that's right yeah, yeah. the the females are that's right thank you that they need to show the rest of their state their gorgeous plumage to do that they have to be able to they they need to get to let their colleagues indulge them in that sometimes but they can't do it so often that they ruin the reputation of the Senate, okay? So we get this very peculiar result. It's a fascinating institution. While senators have, now think about it this way, okay? You could, if Mitch, Mitch McConnell, you know, the, if you go through the daily procedure, there's like these normal things that the Senate is supposed to do every morning. Usually they get around them by saying, I ask unanimous consent to, you know, dispose of the rules or unanimous consent to continue. In other words, so the idea is, is that it's basically to do things on a day-to-day -day basis, the Senate asks itself or asks everybody in the Senate not to object just so we can move, move along. Because if, like, like I said, if, if you needed a, you know, the Senate to turn its lights on, they could have a theoretically endless debate about whether or not the Senate should turn its lights on and what bulbs the Senate should use, and who should sit in what chair, and all this stuff. They could just debate it endlessly. But the problem with that would be that it would reduce the reputation of the institution. So what they do is they have the right to debate endlessly on literally anything. 
but senators regularly choose on most issues not to make use of that right. That's the key to understanding the Senate. Senators, the way the floor works is that senators have virtually unlimited ability to just slow things down and peacock all they want, but they choose not to most of the time, most of the time. Okay. So the idea is that in practice, the Senate strikes a balance between individual members peacocking. So an issue that's important to an individual member, they can peacock. Ted Cruz has done that. Ted Cruz did that a couple of years ago with a very long filibuster. Uh, Bernie Sanders did that over 10 years ago, I think like 15 years ago, filibustering like George Bush's tax cuts or something like that. Right. So individual senators can talk at length. Right. They, they do that sometimes, but they don't do it all the time. Right. And, and so what they do is they utilize what are known, mainly utilize what are known as unanimous consent agreements, where they basically just put the rules aside and they just agree to just move forward and nobody like use your ability to just talk endlessly. Right. Um, and, and this is where, where people don't understand where the filibuster comes in and wh why, why the filibuster exists, because on certain issues, on policy disputes that are of high salience, senators will have an incentive to gum up the works, to talk endlessly. And so what the filibuster does is it's a way to bring that kind of peacocking to an end because on an issue like abortion, for instance, right, there's, you know, you have a solid 80 out of 100 senators who would grind that institution into the ground over the issue of abortion if they were able to. So what the filibuster does is it brings an end to debate is what it does. And so to think of it as like, it's not fair that it takes 60 votes. Well, bear in mind that most things take 100, effectively 100 votes to do just the normal mundane business. That's really the way to think about um, the filibuster, in my opinion, is that on most things, the Senate just sort of decides not to indulge itself in its like endless possibilities for debate, but on politically salient, politically divisive issues, because there will be a group that will be willing to just debate endlessly, that's where the filibuster comes in. So the filibuster itself is really kind of this check on the otherwise essence of the Senate rules, which is you can talk as long as you want on any subject you want. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's broadly fair. Um, you know, the I'm, I'm, senators. So, okay, it, it. I think it's worth pausing for a moment to say why. Um, discussion is the essence of the Senate independent of, of these rules, right? Like you could have, the filibuster could be 75 votes, it could be 55 votes, it could be 52 votes, right? Like, and it would, it would change the way in which, it would change the scope of what policy could get passed somewhat, but I don't know that it would totally change the nature of the institution. I think to fundamentally change the nature of the institution, you would have to go to 50-50, and you would find a ton of clashing incentives that we'll get into here in a second. But mm -hmm. the, the the critical thing, and I'm sort of stepping back to, to what I had, I had started this with, the critical thing to understand is that, you know, go, go back to the Go back to the behaviors, both the, the sort of the sociology of a representative that Fenno outlined and the behaviors of, of 
a legislator that that Mayhew outlined. And senators, because of the overlapping constituency and the staggered term, have these behaviors on combined with the decentralized policymaking nature of things, have these incentives on steroids. Mm -hmm. And so for much of the time that they're in the Senate, they're not being watched very acutely, right? Since since you can you can even wait out a president if you're a senator mm-hmm. right, by design. Yeah. Um, if you're a senator who gets reelected once, in theory, you could wait out three presidents, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, which is wild. Um, and so, you know these these folks have a lot of flexibility of action for two thirds of their term, right? Um, by that you mean effectively they're not like they have to be they have to be more mindful of the politics of their state when their re-election cycle begins correct they're not under the microscope right Right. but they're also not entirely under the microscope from like national political entrepreneurs either right so they can kind of go feral they can defect to some extent from the um from the incentives of their party um they can themselves become policy entrepreneurs, they can drill deeply, or they can just sort of mess around and write books and not actually legislate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you also have the the Senate Intelligence Committee is a much more high desirability location than the House Intelligence Committee because you get bonus staff, you actually get to learn a lot of things. Likewise, um, Senate Judiciary. Yeah, I mean the House, the House Judiciary Committee. That's a yeah, garbage right? committee, right? Right. That's a garbage but um, yeah, and and because you're responsible for voting on nominations, you have opportunities to display yourself, but also assert a more direct influence on the administrative state than anyone in the House. Mm-hmm. And I think some members of the Senate find this distracting and they don't get a lot done. Um, and I won't name any names, but <laughs> you know, if you're listening, you know who you are. Um, and other, other senators uh, find this an opportunity to um, you know, really dig deep into important policy areas. You know, for as as much grief as I've given John McCain on this podcast over uh, campaign finance, you know, he and his staff took very seriously the problem of defense acquisition, uh, a deeply unsexy and potentially politically toxic issue. Right? Where do, where do we make our weapons? How how do we buy them? How do we how do we monitor their quality? How do we upgrade our systems? And you know, there is nobody in the house who can do that. Because in order to do that, you have to have time and you have to have concentrated resources. And there simply isn't anyone on the House side who has the time and has the concentrated resources to take time out from whatever he or she is doing and dig deeply into those kind of complex issues. And I just, I use that as an example. There are examples of people doing this for, you know, air quality and water quality, for consumer safety, for electricity. I mean, the list goes on, right? Instead of simply being extensions of the, uh, the hypostatic interests in their district, because they represent a state, because they have a, a, a much more diverse body of people that they're representing, regardless of the partisan breakdown of their state, um, you know, th- and because senators have staff that's allocated largely based on population, but nonetheless, even the smallest Senate staff is con- and, and seniority, the largest Senate staff is still considerably bigger than the overwhelming majority of House staffs. Um, the Senate can do policy somewhat insulated from um, 
somewhat insulated from the uh, from the political winds of election cycles. And so the question is, what do you do to make it look like you're doing things when you are actually doing things, but they're largely happening under the radar? Right. And the answer is you talk a lot, you right. take opinions, you make speeches. Um, any senator can attract a press scrum, right? They really can. Um, you know, you, you can get a guy, let's take somebody who's not terribly senior from uh, a, a guy like, let's see, who Mike um, Rounds. Mike Rounds. Well, Mike's, Mike's the senior senator from South Dakota. Oh, right? yeah, but that's like, yeah. yeah. But like, so, so take Kramer, right? Right. Um, okay. You know, <sighs> You know, you're you're if if you're a freshman from an at-large senator uh, senate seat, right? Like you've accrued no seniority. Nonetheless, you can walk out into the corridor, and as long as your staff is minimally competent, there will be at least a small scrum of newspapers and and stations there to stick camera or microphones in your face. Um, and so the the low barrier to performative entry, the fact that speeches are facilitated in the body and these two things, I guess, I'm sorry, what I'm saying is these two things, the, the low barrier to performative, uh, the low barrier to entry to um, forensic eloquence, if you will, or forensic performance, and the incentives built around speechifying in the body, these are mutually reinforcing, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, you know, when you've got a marginal vote, that's very powerful because each senator has a powerful vote. Um, it's very easy to get attention, and when you're, it's easy to get attention, it's a good idea to use that to your benefit, right? Um, and so I think I think what people, what I'm I'm doing a bad job of succinctly getting to the point I'm doing a bad job of succinctly getting to, is that even if you eliminated the filibuster, and doing so would dramatically change the body, nonetheless, the um, loquacity of the body would not necessarily go away. Yeah, I think that's I think that's well put. Um, and I think that it's important to bear in mind, I think this sort of relates to a point that I was making, which I, maybe I'll, I'll repeat here, but you know, there, there has to be for this to work, there has to be a mutual toleration among senators, regardless of party affiliation, right? If your political and policy incentives revolve around you talking a lot, then you have to allow your fellow senators to talk a lot. It's almost similar to the way a log roll would work in the House of Representatives. I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. And so the Senate's, you know, it's almost sort of a, a, a log roll of, you know, hot air, for lack of a better, for lack sure. of a better um, phrase. And, and so what we see is that I think is the way to understand when we think about the filibuster, the filibuster is a way to end debate on issues where actual policy stakes are evident, right? Um, senators can debate things endlessly if they want to. Most of the time, they choose not to. On some issues, they would choose to. And what's you know interesting is that filibusters is just, a, generally speaking, a dilatory tactic. We usually think of a filibuster as a dilatory tactic that involves speaking, but mm -hmm. there are all sorts of dilatory tactics. Um, probably the most common through history is the so-called vanishing quorum, where um, you know this is what uh, Joe Cannon or Tom Reed broke the vanishing quorum in 1890 or something, where 
you know, member of the House would suggest the absence of a quorum. They do a roll call. A bunch of Democrats, because Reed was a uh, was a Republican, a bunch of Democrats would sit in their chair and not answer. And Reed broke this vanishing quorum by just basically saying, "I see you, Johnson. Mark him as president." Right. I mean, vanishing quorums are a very old legislative tactic. You can go, I mean, just as an example of how old they are, one of the things that the anti-federalists in the Pennsylvania state legislature did to prevent the early calling of of the ratifying convention all the way back in 1787 is just disappeared, such that the sergeant of arms had to literally go and track them down. And you've seen things like that. We saw the Democrats do something like that last year, I guess, in Texas. And then a couple of years back in Wisconsin, they do vanishing quorums or common. And so that would be one. And by the way, the, the Senate with, with a 50-50 Senate, you know, the Republicans could suggest the absence of a quorum and walk out. And they could do that if they wanted to in a 50-50 Senate. Uh, so that, I mean, that's just one example. And so anyway, uh, the Senate did not actually have a rule about a cloture rule until in the lead up, I think right before... 1917, I think, was when Woodrow Wilson denounced Republican isolationists for filibustering and pressured the Senate into adopting a version of what is now Rule 22. Rule 22 is the cloture rule. And originally, you needed to muster a two-thirds majority to, um, to end debate. And just basically tell, I mean, the cloture vote basically tells senators, we don't care if you need it, if you want to keep talking, you're going to shut up basically in like two days. You have to shut up. That's what the cloture does. Stop talking, shut up. That's what the cloture rule does. Forces senators to shut up even if they don't want to. So originally there was no cloture rule. Um, and it, it was changed in the 1970s from two thirds to three fifths. Um, but I think one of the and, and, and nowadays people say, well, you know, the filibuster has gotten out of control. It's, there's way too many cloture votes. And that's true, I think. Um, but it's also downstream of another decision that they made in the 70s was to create what is known as a two-track system mm. for filibusters. And, and what, what that means is it, it used to be um, that if you wanted to filibuster something, you had to literally hold the floor until the, uh, the opposition relented or the majority relented. You had to hold the floor. Um, you know, you and your fellows will get on the floor and you debate, and debate, debate. And in the 1970s, they changed that to sort of have this kind of what they call a two-track system. So if there's a filibuster of, an, of, a, of, a, of a bill or something, then the Senate switches off of that bill onto some other business so that you don't actually have to talk you just have to indicate a preparedness to talk and then they take a cloture vote and then and and so one of the one of the things that i think is a problem that has become with this with the filibuster um is you know the you can imagine the virtue of a filibuster in the american system of government in a system where we as our constitution is very wary of temporary, fleeting, fractious majorities. You could imagine a situation in which an impassioned minority that is willing to put the elbow grease in by actually talking and paying the penalty of literally holding the floor 
right? And like giving up their comfort and the ease and the joy and the fun of being a senator to, to stay on the floor or be ready to pick up uh, the debate um, and, and carry it forward, right? Like in other well, words- and, and transactionally ex- expiring sort of all the favors that they might have accrued from, yes. from previous legislating, and, right? I mean, there, there is a all- tangible tit for tat here. Right. And that's very true. And another, and and I think the main reason, the main incentive to do this, because, you know, um, it's not so, you know, one of the one of the things, or maybe the thing, that is a, a scarce resource in Congress is time. There's only so much time in a Congress. There are very lengthy breaks, and there are, you know, they only last two years. And any legislation that is unfinished after two years has to be started up again at the new Congress. Everything resets, except the rules of the Senate, things reset. Um, And so a filibuster, what it does is it eats up time. And that time is eaten up not just for the policy goals of, you know, the people whose bill is being filibustered, but also the people who are doing the filibustering which as Luke indicated is meaningful in the Senate because a lot of times senators can act as policy entrepreneurs and go off and do all sorts of other things. They can sort of freelance here and there and do all these other things, which is more difficult to do when the legislative days are being like consumed by filibuster. And so this is one reason why they created uh, the two-track the two track system. But of course, the flip side though is it is effectively created a 60 vote threshold to pass anything in in the senate which i i don't really think is in keeping with the spirit of the filibuster to be honest um it's certainly not in keeping with the spirit of rule 19 and the sort of the notion of the importance of debate because this is of course a two-track system means that there is no debate you know yeah another- there's yeah there's there's not gonna be any debate like yeah. essentially what you can do is you just you put the issue on the back burner yeah you just and you you, move on to something else you know another challenge with this too and i think this harkens back to you know the senate during the second party system was often oh actually jay before we before you one one structural effect that this has too that people should consider is if you know that your the bills are just going to be put on the back burner you pat you promote different kinds of bills right like it it makes it makes doing show votes more appealing because if you don't think you can get a tangible piece of legislation done, right? It's not necessarily true that every piece of legislation just needs to move to whatever the set the center by 10% or whatever, you know, this is a stylized notion, but, uh, and then suddenly it becomes passable, right? Um, so if, if you know that you can get to 56 votes, but you, um, you know that there's, you're going to get filibustered, right? Uh, then maybe you just decide to give up two or three of those 56 votes to get the really pure uncut stuff and put it on the floor. And that will right? appeal to the base. That will appeal to your political base and right. that will that will also, you know, frankly, give some of your colleagues cover to vote against their party and look independent, right? I mean, right. these are there are there are really interesting ways in which individual political incentives and and partisan incentives are both they overlap and oftentimes overlap in ways that mean not passing policy or if you are going to pass policy anyway promoting more extreme or i would say just closer to the poll policy because if it's not passing you might as well win some you know performance points out of it especially given that again as a senator 
you know, if you don't have something to show for the four or the four years you haven't been in cycle, when you come back into cycle, well, then this is the easiest way to get cheap points quickly. Right. And I think that actually leads to, um, I think our final subject when we're talking about the filibuster, and I think this relates, I think, to your article that you wrote for National Review 18 months ago, which is, you know, a lot of times the left assumes, because it's usually the left that wants the filibuster eliminated. I mean, Donald Trump in 2018 demanded that the filibuster be eliminated, but I think that it didn't get any pool among conservative groups, I would say, you know, the main conservative intellectual institutions in Washington, Heritage, AEI, were not down for that. I don't recall it really being a major sort of push on Fox News during prime time, like eliminating the filibuster. It was something that Trump, you know, tweeted, and that was sort of the end of it. And there wasn't really a lot of political pressure on McConnell, Mitch McConnell, to get rid of the filibuster. But this has been in the last year, and I think it's dying down now because I think the Democrats realize how politically tenuous their position is. So I don't, I don't think they're anticipating any major policy breakthroughs between now and election day. And I think at this point, they're probably smart ones among them are pricing in a very high likelihood of the house flipping to the Republicans um, and a very good chance of both chambers flipping to the Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so I think the notion of, you know, oh, we need to get rid of the filibuster is probably something we're not going to hear for another decade, to be perfectly honest. And it's just the way things go. We usually don't hear this. I mean, the way things have been, we usually don't hear this until the Democrats have the trifecta. So the issue, I think, is probably dying down now because I think the Democrats realize that this trifecta sucks. Like, it's a terrible trifecta. It's the weakest trifecta probably in American political history. Mm-hmm. That, they're, that even with even if you eliminate the filibuster, the reality is, is that for almost everything on the Democratic agenda, they really only have at most 48 votes and probably like Manchin and Cinema, are probably hiding another three or four Democrats behind them who don't want to vote for the program if it's actually going to be enacted. Um, like a Mark Kelly type person, right, um, I would say, and probably, you know, what's her name up in New Hampshire, probably. Hassan. Yeah, Hassan. She doesn't want to, Hassan doesn't want to vote for some, she does not want to enact Build Back Better with inflation at seven and a half percent and standing for election in a state like New Hampshire, which goes through politicians like Kleenex up there. I mean, they are relentless up there. She doesn't want to vote for this garbage, right? She she wants to, as Luke said, she wants to cast the show vote so she can appeal to her base without actually be taking responsibility for a given policy outcome. But let's imagine, nevertheless, a scenario in which the filibuster is eliminated. The common assumption among Democrats. There, there is a chance, by the way, Jay, now that all but two Democrats have voted to nuke the filibuster. I mean, I think if you see an if you I think if you see unified Republican government in January 2025, the Republicans may go nuclear on the filibuster because at this point they know that the Democrats, given the votes, would have done it. And yeah, so, I think that's an important point to bear in mind. Actually, before we get into this hypothetical question, I would just point yeah. out too that you know a lot of people would say. Uh, that uh, McConnell is, of course, on the Democratic side, people will say that McConnell is to blame for the elimination of the Supreme Court filibuster. Um, But really, I would argue that McConnell's hands were tied 
because when Harry Reid back in 2014 uh, destroyed the judicial filibuster for lower court appointments, McConnell made a threat, which he had to do. And McConnell, I think, was obligated to follow through on the threat. Otherwise, in the future, nobody would take his threat seriously. He would look like the boy who cried wolf. And so when McConnell promised, you know, like, for instance, when the Democrats a year ago were contemplating the destruction of the filibuster, McConnell got on the floor of the Senate and said, I promise you a nuclear winter. I don't think he was bluffing. The question is whether or not he could deliver, you know, to what extent could a 50 Senate minority really muck up the works but i don't think there's any doubt that they would have tried because there has to be um you know you you cannot issue non-credible threats otherwise you will the next time you're in the minority your rights will just get trampled over so you might be right luke i mean yeah well and there's there's a level of personal disgust there as well because you know you have had every single pretty much every single elected democrat save two call this an inherently racist institution, a barrier to progress, evil to use, et cetera. And then they're going to turn around and use it mm-hmm. as early as January or February of next year, mm-hmm. 2023. They used it to block the Nord Stream 2 pipeline um, sanctions. Sure, right. They that used is that well. when they're in the majority. They, right. That thing got 56 yeah. votes. Right. But, you while, know, literally while the Democrats that, that was in the middle of their PR push for a voting rights carve out for right. for the filibuster. But, you know, I, I think that the thing that people miss is that there are there are a lot like the personal side of this matters a ton. Right. And so, you know, Joe Manchin's view is that if he is personable and capable of communicating with the leadership of the other party then he can preserve the collegial Senate. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true, because I know that there are a lot of people who would like to preserve the collegial Senate, but I also know that there are a whole lot of people who say, with, with good reason, that like you cannot negotiate, I mean, I say this myself, you cannot negotiate with someone who refuses to reciprocate any goodwill, right? Like, if you truly are negotiating with people who will just stab you in the back, the minute you get an opportunity, then you really are just in tit for tat, right. hostile negotiation. And so right. no trust-based system can be achieved. And I think it's quite likely that so long as Chuck Schumer is the Senate leader for the Democrats, that once the Republicans have a, a majority in the Senate of sufficient size and Democrats who have voted to eliminate the filibuster, then turn around and use a tool that they themselves thought, sought to destroy when they thought they had the opportunity, that Republicans will see no reason to preserve the legislative filibuster. Now, a lot of that will depend on whether or not that majority has coherent um, legislative goals, right. which has been, as, as you pointed out, Jay, one of the things under, underlining the issues that this majority has had is right. they don't agree on a whole lot, right. right? They agreed that we needed another COVID bill. They agreed that tenuously that it was a good idea to spend some money on infrastructure. We'll see what that winds up looking like, but they at least agreed in principle enough to get over the finish line so long as there was bipartisan support for it. It doesn't, it doesn't appear that you can get 50 Democrats to agree on much else mm-hmm. other than voting rights, which is sort of a, a coy term for overhauling and nationalizing elections in manner that you know, Democratic campaign lawyers have told elected Democrats will benefit them. I'm not actually sure that's true. 
I'm but not that's, either. I think that's that what, yeah, that's Democrats what have this. I think Democrats have this uh, notion that I think is fanciful that high turnout elections must necessarily favor them. Well, and, and Republicans, frankly, have a fear of saying that is also probably fanciful. Yeah, I agree. Um, but look, I, I mean, what I'm getting at is that, you know, the there there are not that many things that the Democratic Party and the Senate agrees on right now. Mm-mm. And as a result, you can't build the political weight necessary to go nuclear on the filibuster. Now, let's let's take a contrary example. Right. Let's assume for the sake of argument that, um, you know, aliens landed in the Potomac Basin. <laughs> and we're, we're threatening to um, to go after the Capitol. But, um, you know, for whatever reasons of, of corruption or body snatching or whatever, um, you know, some percentage of of senators were unwilling to support any kind of um, legislation to engage the, the space aliens camped out in the Potomac. <laughs> the Senate would go nuclear to eliminate the filibuster in this circumstance, right? Yes. Because there's sufficient political demand among the senators to make that happen, right? Um, and so it's important when people say, oh, this is a relic, oh, this is a holdover. It's it's none of these things. It's a rule of convenience preserved by the existing majority in the Senate. Right. Right. And and as a result, um, you know, you might put something out there that all 50 Democratic senators agree with, agree with enthusiastically, but don't agree with with sufficient enthusiasm to eliminate the check on legislative power, especially looking ahead mm-hmm. to midterms that are likely, very, very likely at this point, I would say, by no means guaranteed, but very, very likely to create a unified Republican Congress. Right. Um, which might actually, Jay, is it worth it? I mean, we've talked about dual tracking now. We've sort of talked about, we haven't really quite talked about like the origins of this with Burr, but I kind of think a lot of those origins are, are a bit exaggerated. Yeah, I'm really more interested in your in you recapitulating that argument that you made in National Review and discussing that. Okay. Uh, Because, I mean, there is a a consensus among the left. And, you know, I tend to think liberals have an overly optimistic view of the appeal of their agenda to the country. They tend to, I think... They tend to agree when Obama says the arc of history, you know, when you know Obama quoted that line, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I think they tend to think that it bends towards the liberal notions of justice. So they they tend to be um, Pollyanna-ish about their prospects, which I think is probably a main reason. I don't, for the life of me, I don't know why they would, you know, the, the decision to nuke the judicial filibuster in 2014 considering historical trend lines, which point really strongly historically to, you know, an incumbent president, an incumbent presidential party gets uh, two terms and then it's out. Uh, So I don't know that they did that. And then they were talking again this year as if they were going to hold this slender majority. I mean, a year ago, you would have had to say that holding the house would be a Herculean effort in historical perspective, you know, and likewise, I think that a lot of liberals presume that if we get the we get the filibuster, then we're going to get the stuff that we want. And you, in your in your article eighteen months ago, made the ar- argument that yeah, I don't think that's true, guys. So could you 
maybe expand on that because it was something that I agreed with. And if I recall correctly, we had talked about this before you wrote the article. So yeah, I think it'd be a yeah. good, good opportunity to sort of like thinking through the, in, and I think this will take us back to thinking through the incentive structures of senators vis-a-vis the current rules. And if you change the rules, then their incentive structures are going to change in ways that might actually surprise particularly liberals. Yeah. So I, the the argument is is pretty simple, which is if Democrats nuke the legislative filibuster, they'll come to regret it. Um, I I saw a couple of grounds around which I felt they would probably come to regret it. Um, you know, the first and simplest one is that uh, you know they would they might very quickly find themselves no longer in the Senate majority. And you know, a comparatively unified Republican Party would certainly be able to legislate e- throughout the second half of the of the Biden administration. And people seem to have forgotten that for the last two years of Obama's administration, um, Harry Reid did a lot to protect Obama from Republican policies by filibustering them in the Senate. Um, because if Reid hadn't done that, Obama would have had to issue vetoes. Well, or sign them. Or right. sign them because or they were politically them. popular with the broad middle of the country that decides right. elections. Right. The the point is is that what that does effectively is it eliminates from the president the veneer of being head of state and not simply head of party. Mm-hmm. And and every president, even including Donald Trump, who who was you know fairly unapologetic as a party leader, right, um, and and disdainful of some of the t- traditional trappings and 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 frankly, hot air that goes along with the head of state side of the presidency. He also sought to exert himself as a head of state bigger than just, you know, the Republican Party. Right. In a position in which you have a unified Congress passing legislation that articulates an alternative agenda that the president is being forced to veto, then most of that window dressing goes out the window, right? And, And all of a sudden, the president doesn't just look like a partisan, but looks like a partisan on his back foot. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, he can just start signing and passing Republican legislation or negotiating in good faith to try to moderate and sign it. But that's always going to create political complexity with one's electoral base because right. they're not going to want to see, you know, a president with a D next to his name signing on to a bunch of Republican priorities, even right. if they are watered down in the legislative process, right? Right. In other words, something similar to what Bill Clinton did in 1996 with the welfare bill. Right. And like Bill Clinton was able politically to get away with that, both because he had considerably retail, considerable retail skills, but also because, you know, Democrats had only had one term in the White House out of the, the previous six, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, the, the, the fact that he was able to win the White House gave him within his own party a ton of cover. Right? Yes. Um, and 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 there's just that's not going to be the case, I think, certainly for a Democratic president or a Biden. Yeah. Certainly. And probably not for a Republican president. Either, yeah. right? There's right. both parties believe that they represent the majority in the country. And so both parties, partisans are going to expect their administrations to deliver. And a failure to deliver could lead to self-harming behavior, uh, politically speaking, um, among partisans. And that's what every president wants to avoid. Additionally, frankly, the senators want to avoid that, you know, in miniature because 
they also don't want to be look as as much as Kristen Cinema has and you know Joe Manchin's in a slightly different situation because he represents a small state that is by heritage one of the bluest states in the country but is by recent voting patterns one of the reddest right and so he's he is sort of a he's he's a genuine unicorn Kristen Cinema just looks Kristen Cinema looks like a swing state um a swing state democrat right yeah. There are other swing states Democrats who don't seem to understand how they should look to maximize their political fortunes. But um, like, for instance, I would say like a Joe John Tester. Yeah, I, I mean, say. test. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, Kristen Cinema is she's very aware of just how swingy, you know, the Arizona electric can be in the and suburbs how, and how fluky as well. The circumstances of her victory are, too. Right. And I so while she. While she's indisputably personally quite liberal, I mean, you know, there there are variations on on issues, but like, you know, she used to be a member of the Green Party. She was a progressive when she started her career. And and while I think it's true that she's moved right, I mean, look at the amount of grief that she's taking. She might legitimately lose a primary in four years. Mm -hmm. It's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, time heals a lot of wounds, but boy i mean there are there are echoes frankly of jeff flake during the obama years yeah and and also i would say you know who she really looks like to me in many respects is a is arlen specter in pennsylvania yes that's that's a good animal specter i i used to when i because you know specter was a senator in pennsylvania until i think he died in what like 2010 and his or whenever it was um he he left the senate in 2010 and, and then died shortly thereafter. But I, I used to say it was the Pennsylvania two-step, right? That for four years, he would dance into the center of the institution, wherever that would be, so that he could make deals. And then he would dance back to the right to win the Republican primary. Um, and he did this successfully in 86. He did it in 92, which was very impressive. He did it easily in 98. He ran into trouble in 2004 and required George W. Bush to drag him across the finish line. And I think, you know, that I think is the challenge that a, a Kirsten Cinema would have is that by, you know, by 2004, that sort of tap dance, the party base had caught wise to it. Right. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, when you agree, I think when you said Manchin is a unicorn, I also think that mansion is probably serving as a kind of lightning rod a convenient lightning rod for other senators uh, unlike cinema who you know maybe she has been a little too far out there maybe she needs to kind of hide in the background more and just let mansion take all the heat alone but because mansion can take the heat no, mansion I, I don't think and i don't think liberals appreciate this either you know bernie sanders talks about like primarying joe mansion yeah is, good luck <laughs> it is, it, it, anybody with any familiarity for west virginia politics knows what a ridiculous laughable notion that is that I there mean, I, is I, I can i can put meat on this bone right people know i do a lot of work in west virginia right. so I, I i will just put this out there joe mansion the last one of the last times he was in charleston swung by the west virginia house of delegates which is governed by a conservative republican supermajority walked in the door and got a standing ovation yeah yeah, he yeah, he is I, I, I can't even imagine what his approval rating in that state is right now. It's about and, two thirds. Yeah. And and, and 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 probably like in the, the notion uh, that the, the, unlike in, say, like a, a state like Arizona, where you could rely on the sort of 
upper middle class, left wing, white, hyper engaged online activist base to crowdsource, you know, somebody into contention against cinema. There's, I mean, there's no, there's no infrastructure like that in West Virginia. That constituency outside of a couple neighborhoods in Charleston simply doesn't exist. It simply yeah. doesn't exist. They have nothing on Joe Manchin. They have nothing on him. They've never had anything on him. And so Manchin can conveniently, I think, conveniently serve as a lightning rod to protect other members like Maggie Hassan, Hassan and yeah. you know Mark Kelly and John Tester and even Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Um, although he, I think, is actually just a committed like let's run it and gun it and see what happens live. But in theory, you know, that, and that a lot of these members are able to vote in favor of liberal policy measures, knowing full well that they will be filibustered. Yeah, they're, they're able to be simultaneously more conservative and more left-wing. Right? Mm -hmm. this, this is sort of the irony, is that the, the, the absence of the filibuster would, would push all of these folks into actually voting for bills they thought were a good idea. And, and as anyone who's been in this business will tell you, and as frankly, David Mayhew told you with the advertising credit claiming and position taking, taking stuff, right? When you're trying, and as, as Fenno explained with the, with the you know, party constituency in, in your district, like sometimes you want to take positions that you don't think are good policy, right? Go, go back to one of our earliest episodes on this and think about our discussion between the, the two models of representation, right? What, what are Burke's terms? You've the delegate model and the, um, and trustee. the trustee model, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and as we said, as, an, as a sociological matter, these two things are blended. On things that are of high political salience, you act like a delegate. Right. Of things that are low political salience, you act like a trustee. Well, you know, things that are high political salience where you act like a delegate, you're not generally acting like a delegate for your entire district. You're either acting like a delegate for a critical majority in a general election or much more likely like a majority in your primary selection. Right. And, and so and anticipating, I mean, and this is the other thing too. Because, you know, members of Congress live in perpetual fear. So you're acting as if you are on the cusp of drawing a primary challenge. Right. Even if you don't have one, you still act that way, which I think is the only way to explain the clusterfuck that is <laughs> the majority, you know, Chuck Schumer's tenure in the majority is the specter of AOC is like causing him to lose. I don't think the man slept a full night's sleep in eight months. Yeah, which which I think politically is fascinating because I have no doubt that he would ably dispense with her. In a, I agree, in a especially I in a state like New York. I just think it's beyond bizarre, you know? Yeah, it's, there. there is, now he may be, frankly, it's entirely possible that there are pressures, cross pressures hitting Schumer that we're not privy to where it's his own mem members who are asking him to take these bullets, right? It could be other members of the Senate majority that are That's saying. That's very true, and we would right. never know, but as part of the clubbiness of the Senate, right? So, I, you know, I don't, I don't dismiss that possibility. That's a good point yeah. that he's taking these bullets for other senators, right? right? But yeah, if you took, I mean, look, if you took and forced a, a, a you know, if you gave truth serum to every Republican senator and said to them, "Do you really want to repeal and replace Obamacare?" 
in in 20 in, in what would that have been 2017 right early 2018 they'd have said hell no good god yeah. we don't have we don't have a viable alternative for yeah this. and then because There's, then they would be on the hook right. for whatever stupid thing they replaced it with for well for and for getting rid of a whole bunch of people's health care plans yeah right yeah which is um, a big reason by the way that you know they never crafted a sensible replacement alternative because right. they didn't want to Likewise, if you went to Senate Democrats and said, "Okay, guys, we got them. We've let's do the Medicare for all thing." Filibuster's dead. I mean, what how many actual votes do you think when when the chips are down and the bill's going to pass? How many votes do you think there are for Medicare for all in the Senate? Mm-hmm. Even even just taking the Democrats, maybe 40? I doubt it. Right? I mean, you, that's that's the kind of bill where even if you think that the policy is right, you have to know that you're creating major disruptions among basic goods for average Americans, and yeah. you've got to be ready to lose. Yep. Right? Those, those are those are what are called you know losers. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to lose, but you've got to be ready to put it all on the line. Like what we like what we talked about in the last episode right. with Pelosi just walking her moderates off the plank off a cliff. The problem though is that in the Senate, I mean, we talked about this. You, you just you last, can't do that. Yeah, because the, they, they can say no. <laughs> yeah, and and also senators have been around long enough to know, like even Kirsten Cinema, who's only been in the Senate for three years now, she was in the House for a decade before that. She knows how things work in that town. Yeah, and she, and, and she was work. she was a city councilor and a yeah, state she, legislator. Yeah, she understands she's, how politics work. Right. And and so I think what this is, you know, the challenge then, and I think it would be a greater challenge for Democrats than for Republicans, at least up at first, um, is especially in the Senate, right? Because I, and I think something to bear in mind too is that just on a structural level, the Democrats should be more partial to the Senate than Republicans. Or is more partial to the filibuster because the Democrats win fewer states than Republicans. Right. You know, I mean, that's that just right off the bat. That's just one feature of the political coalitions as they exist right now. And Democrats are complaining that this is fundamentally unfair, but that only tracks with like they've only been saying that for 20 years at the most because. 25 years ago, they were winning more rural voters and they've lost rural voters. And now they've decided it's not fair that rural voters have equal representation in the Senate. So this, all of these sort of, all of these claims about our, our democracy, our republic, which are always, you know, very hyperventilating are all, I don't want to say they're done in bad faith because that implies intention, but like they're either done in bad faith or they're done in a way where people can't distinguish their policy preferences from the structure of the government. So they only their their outrage only goes in one direction. Well, you I would know, also I would point out too that like a party arguing about processes is, is a party. Is it always disingenuous? Well, and and also it's just it's a loser too. You, you never want to go to the ballot box with process Argument. as yeah. you yeah. Like you, it's you like, want it's like that old Carville something. line if you're explaining you're losing. Right. It, it's just an inherent loser. Um so I mean, that's just right off the bat. So you have then like a Democratic majority in the Senate is always going to be is inevitably going to be built off of the back of states that have voted Republican at least once in the last three presidential cycles. Right. right? A New Hampshire, a Michigan, a Wisconsin, a Montana, which votes consistently, a Georgia, an Arizona, Pennsylvania and Ohio. Right. Uh, You're always going to have states like that. Uh, and you're going to have more of those members on the Democratic side than you are on the Republican side because 
the, uh, the overwhelming sort of lion's share of votes in the Democratic electoral coalition are in California, New York, these massive vote sinks, right? Um, uh, and that, it, and, and so there's something there to bear in mind for Republicans are gonna experience this kind of tension less. A guy like Mike Rounds is not gonna have the disconnect between uh, his primary electorate and his general electorate to the same extent that a Kirsten Sinema is gonna have, or a Sherrod Brown is gonna have also. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also worth noting that that sincerely, the the modal Democratic senator is more left wing. Right. Or the modal ideology among Democratic senators has moved to the left. Mm-hmm. Right. As as legislation has stalled out and the performance incentives have increased, um, it's, you know, Patty Murray is a relatively moderate senator in the democratic caucus and she is a she is a committed down the line liberal right mm-hmm. so so it would not be true, true that you know i i hesitate to analogize over on the republican side because these things don't analogize well and what we may see frankly is the same process may play out in the republican senate moving forward right but you know you have a joe manchin you have a susan collins joe manchin outperforms his state's presidential vote index by far more than susan collins does but susan collins wins a much larger majority in the state than manchin does and so there's there are questions about who has more flexibility in anywhere they're comparatively like quite old you know you you look at collins still has murkowski to her left Mm-hmm. And if Murkowski survives in Alaska because of the funny Alaska election rules, then she will be a lot like <clears throat> she will be like a weird inverted mansion where she is much more liberal than the state that elected her, um, just as Manchin is much more liberal, but she'll still technically be caucusing with Republicans, right? Mm-hmm. So so that'll be a different thing. But the the reality is once you get past the first handful of Democrats. Um, you don't have much else until you get to people who are sort of more or less down the line progressive votes, right? Um, there are exceptions around things like healthcare, but I think that it's just worth pointing out that you do have the, the modal Democratic senator is much more progressive today than was true 10 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of this is to say that like, it may be that these folks don't feel cross pressured at all um, because partisan ID is so high. And so all they're worried about is, you know, if, if you have an efficient allocation of, product, uh, of, of partisans, like one could say might be the case in Oregon or Washington state, right? Then why feel cross pressured at all? Now, I suspect that some people in Nevada thought that they were in the same position and are discovering that they're in fact not in the same position. Um, and it, it's entirely possible that if the national environment is bad enough that even the folks in Oregon and Washington could have a rough Tuesday um, come November. Nonetheless, you know, we are seeing the parties get more ideological in the Senate um, and much less regional. There are some exceptions, but you know, even guys like Tester and Manchin are not, they're still voting for very, very liberal judges down the line, et cetera. And they're not and really- And nominations paying. too. And nominations. Yeah, and like, not, like yeah. Ma- Manchin stood up, up, up against 
what's her name? Ne- Tandon. Tandon. But that's yeah. it. You know, he's let everything else fly. Through. Yeah. He, I mean, he let, um, I forgot the HHS separate, uh, Becerra, right? He let Becerra right. go through, which was uh, kind of, from an ideological standpoint, a risky thing to do. Mm-hmm. Now, now Manchin's position, and this actually interestingly used to be the old Lindsey Graham position back when, when South Carolina was a bit swingier, um, because the upland rural whites voted Democrat, you know, it was Lindsey Graham's position that senators should vote for nominees provided they're qualified irrespective of ideology, right? And that was a kind of statesmanly thing to do. Manchin can still pull that off, which mm-hmm. is interesting. I'm surprised that more politicians don't try to pull that off, but, but we're digressing a little bit here. What, what I would say is let's go back to let's go back to the last election cycle. And let's say for the sake of argument that um, you know, Cal Cunningham is not a philanderer and he beats Tom <laughs> Tillis, right? And let's say every for the time sake you of, mention him, it just makes me laugh. Yeah, you know, <laughs> old kissing Cal. Um, yeah. Boy, that was I. You know, I did a, so a very funny. small bit of work on that one, and that was a fun one. Oh, that was um, amazing. But the you know, the. I would say that you know if he's you like said, the okay, dorkiest adulterer ever. Yeah, truly. I mean, he makes he makes John Edwards look like Rico Suave. But um, <laughs> anyway, please, I'm sorry. But yeah, but no, no, you're fine. But so if we look at if we look at that, let's say they pick that one up, and somehow you know Teresa Greenfield wins in Iowa, or I, I mean, I hesitate to even bring up Maine, right, because of the dominance that that you know we saw there from Susan Collins. But assume they're they're sitting at at 54 instead of, of, you know, 50, it is conceivable, right? The Democrats would have gone nuclear, gotten rid of the filibuster and, and, you know, legislated a lot more, even if Manchin was pumping the brakes, right. And voting to sustain a Republican, um, and, and initially voting to sustain Republican filibusters. Right. However, what I think, you know, let's imagine the situation where we'd gone, we'd gone in here with a, a 53 or 54 Democratic vote majority, um, a, a very radicalized Democratic base that was, you know, believed that the believing that the opposing party was a threat to democracy and that it was critical to engage in structural reform in order to prevent Republicans retaking power, right? Which was an argument that was voiced in public by lots of people who ought to have known better. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, nonetheless, let us assume for the sake of argument that this had happened. Um, firstly. And this is some stuff that I outlined in the article, but that vastly to fixate on the filibuster vastly underrates the number of dilatory tactics available to the minority party in the right. Senate. Right? Um, we haven't even talked about methods that I, I mean. You have you have longstanding, persistent um, cloture rules in committees, so you would have had Republican walkouts in committees immediately. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I mean, instantly. Um, those Republican walkouts would have forced yet another vote on the rules yet again, which would have, you know, caused a lot of neurosis among, among the majority of Democratic senators, right? Um, as would intervening events. Uh, you would have, and, and that would have been a major dilatory tactic. Uh, you would have had um, every possible procedural mechanism thrown against the wall to try to delay the um, to delay the nominating of nominees, right? right? Every single thing would have had to come to the floor, yep. right? There would be there would be no unanimous consent motion. No, Just no. forget it. They're and done. Every senator, every Democrat 
would have to be on the floor to, or 50 Democrats would have to be on the floor to one Republican. Correct. Yeah. It would be a 50 to one every day, every minute of every day. Every, so every single thing would become a war. And, yeah. you know, I, talking trench warfare in the committees. Um, and as a result, you know, the notion that if they just got rid of the filibuster, Democrats would have been able to add, you know, Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. to the list of states built in a it had gone from a majority of 53 to 57 and, you know, essentially ended Republican rule forever on a, you know, despite only narrowly winning a majority in the country was always a fantasy because even under these circumstances, you're just not going to get those bills passed. The but calendar. Once, yeah, because the, the clock is going to eat the, the clock. Life. The Republicans could eat the clock to, a, right. I think, an extent to which I'm not sure anybody knows because this would be an unprecedented territory and it would right. be the Republicans would poke and prod and investigate and entrepreneur and innovate ways to eat the clock. And you would, and you would also have an increasing number of increasingly de- nervous Democratic incumbents pumping the brakes, right. right? And this this is where the sort of rubber meets the road, right? Once you're voting on things, once you're casting final votes, you don't just have to be ready to have your partisans understand, oh, so-and-so stands with X, right? You have to have them ready to deal with the material consequences of what comes. A huge reason Build Back Better did not pass is because inflation is at generational records. Mm-hmm. You can say that's dumb. You can say, you know, uh, Democrats should have more courage of their convictions, yada, yada. It does not matter. Um, with inflation north of 5%, incumbents are going to get seriously nervous about voting for more spending. Right. Even if, as some economists contend, this inflation has nothing to do with the already ample spending passed by the House and Senate and signed by the Biden administration. Even if those economists are right, the law, the, the logic of political blame is su- such that a unified party is not a suicidal party. Mm-hmm. And the minute you're voting on things that are going to have material consequences in the world, people start to get squiffy. Especially in the Senate. Especially in the Senate. Political knowledge is greater, and Pelosi, frankly, is pretty good at duping her junior members into thinking that maybe they can survive what she knows is a suicide mission. You cannot dupe a senator into a suicide mission. It's almost a contradiction in terms because a person who has achieved the status of senator with only a handful of exceptions, like a Doug Jones, for instance, they're not flukes. They've been in politics long enough to know. What is a dangerous vote? Yeah, they know the score, and they have they people around the them who know the score, even if they don't. Right. And and look, they have a lot of interests in their state who are really invested in keeping them in the Senate, who will make sure that they know the score if you know they start to seem to have some score blindness, right? And so I think there's just – it's very, very hard to convince a lot of senators to commit political suicide. And – you know, some people say, oh, you, they should be brave. Oh, they should do bolder things. This fundamentally misunderstands the nature of representing an entire state, yes, right? It's, it's right. just you are taking on a whole bunch of affected interests. And 
all of a sudden, if you have a conspiracy, a dilatory conspiracy between swing seat members of the majority party and the minority party, then it gets really, really easy to stop things from happening. Right. And, and if, if you wind up with sufficient you know, localized alienation, right? Um, think Link Chafee here. All of a sudden, you know, you might have people switch parties. Yeah. It doesn't generally end well for them. And, no. you know, there, there are lots of reasons why Joe Manchin's not going to switch parties. But right. like in an environment where you have a Democratic majority of 53 or 54 seats and they're talking about adding Puerto Rico. I can see Joe Manchin switching. I, yeah, Manchin would switch in those circumstances. Mm-hmm. He would switch instead of voting. And he certainly wouldn't vote to make D.C. a state. So, <laughs> so yeah, it just. Oh, my goodness, are, that would be. And I mean, that's the other thing, too. And, and, and likewise, right, like Republicans are going to have to if they if they get unified government in 2025. You know, are they really going? Are they really ready to they need to decide what they're going to do? Right. Because if they try to go back and repeal and replace Obamacare, which I don't think they're going to do because it feels like the political juice behind that has been spent. I agree. They need to have an answer. Even um, even the name Obamacare. I mean, by that point, Obama will have been out of office for nearly a decade. Right. You know, I mean, he's um, off doing Netflix documentaries for crying out loud. Right. You know, but like, are they are they ready to do nationwide constitutional carry, I, or nationwide right to work, or yeah, nationwide exactly. fetal pain bill, nationwide fetal heartbeat? You know, depending on what the Supreme Court does in Shelby v. Alabama. You know, yeah. are they willing to make that a nationwide? Yeah, that's true. They need to think. And, and and also they need to get their members, their members collectively need but, to think about. But this is the thing is like you can do all of that you want. You're not going to know until the until the, the the game starts getting played. Right. Right. Um, and this and I, this is why. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I think just to sort of bring the conversation to a close, I, I think that the problem with the filibuster for the left is that. You can eliminate the filibuster, but it doesn't change the fact that the Senate being designed the way it was is still a kind of aristocracy where you have political elites who are, I mean, really, I think that's what it gets down to, is that nobody in the Senate is a soldier, Nobody in the Senate is a, <laughs> oh. nobody in the Senate is an enlisted man. They're all officers. That's right. Whole whole lot of whole lot of uh, chiefs. Almost no braves. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and so I think that that would be problematic for Democrats. Eliminating the filibuster is that you would your expectation, like oh John Tester will walk the plank for us, and then suddenly John Tester's voting against you when he had voted for you previously. Like oh, what's he doing? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's the same thing that we got a foretaste of this, did we not, Luke? When John McCain voted to kill Obamacare? Yeah, right? I mean, look, he, like John, had, John McCain he, how did some, his colleagues an enormous favor there because they weren't they weren't ready to deal with the political but, consequences. But, but how many times did McCain vote with the Republicans on a? on symbolic bills that had no policy impact tons. and then set tons on he, ran for, he, he ran for re-election on repealing obamacare yeah exactly on, on built on building the dang fence and repealing repealing obamacare, obamacare. yeah and and that is the sort of thing uh, you know, arlen specter mastered this right that you can for four of your six years uh do whatever you want 
for all intents and purposes. And a guy like McCain, who was reelected in when was McCain reelected? 2014, right? Uh, no, he wait, was he one of ours in 14? I don't know. Um, no, because then he would have been up in eight. So, no, he was a, I think he was 16. Okay, so he was reelected in 2016. He's he died. He can probably realize, okay, this is my last rodeo. I do whatever I want. Yeah. How whatever I want to do. And how many senators like Diane Feinstein right now, you know, can do whatever she wants. She's not running again. You know, I mean, this is a sort and, and she's there, you know, for another couple regardless. I don't want to get on a tangent. Yeah. But you see the point though. The point is is that the notion that the Senate that senators are going to be cowed by a national party is problematic. That senators are where they are because they are skilled at politics and skilled at political survival. And the notion of just getting rid of the filibuster is going to result in some kind of hyper ideological, uh, like we're going to get something like, you know, ideological government is under misunderstands and oversimplifies the political calculations of senators and takes takes for granted the faulty notion that senators always vote their true interests on bills that they know are not going to pass that's right yeah if you if you look at you know if you look at a lot of the votes people take right uh and this this is another thing that the filibuster does that's important let's let's make it concrete right is it's a sort of it's a bi-directional shield if you need to burnish your credentials with your party base, you can vote for things that are to the left or to the right of what you would actually think is wise policy in order to make them happen. And you're not going to have to deal with the material consequences of it because it's never going to pass, right? right? And so this is why like, you will have every single Republican will vote for any gun bill, period, right? right? Because they know it won't it won't be it it's won't not overcome gonna, a filibuster. Exactly. It's not going to overcome a filibuster. Um, likewise, every Democrat is going to vote for every abortion expanded bill. Every single one. Doesn't even matter, right? Like other than maybe Joe Manchin. But with the exception of Joe, I mean, they're all going to vote for it because it's not going to pass and thus it's a it's a no cost vote in their state. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least it, with their primary electorate. By contrast, right? Um, if you want to look more moderate, um, you know, if a bill is definitely not going to pass, right, like an environmental regulation, let's say an expansion of the a reauthorization and expansion of the Clean Water Act, Joe Manchin and John Tester can vote against that, even though you know their votes are inessential to it passing, right? Or you know they can vote against some nominee that they know is going to get through, right? Like. They could take a stand against now. Usually, when a senator is taking a stand against a nominee at this point, you know that's enough to kill the nomination, right? Um, without significant crossover support from the other party. But um, it's easy for senators to take low-cost votes that can simultaneously make them look to their base more ideologically aligned and make them look to the general electorate more moderate. Eliminate exactly. the filibuster, and that ability is gone. And and what comes after that is well. And, and this is another important point, Jay, is that whichever party moves first, whoever shoots first is going to do all the learning on the floor. <laughs> That's true. That's true because we don't know exactly how that plays out. 
Yeah. But we will learn. And we've seen that before. We talked a couple of weeks ago about campaign finance. Yeah. Right. You know, it, it took a while. You know, when the Supreme Court legalized soft money, it wasn't really soft money did not reach its soft, peak soft of, dollars, not soft money. Thank you. Soft dollars did not reach their peak of influence until 1996 because it took. Oh, sorry. Soft money. You're right. Sorry. I, I thought you were talking about the bicker of my bad. Oh, no. Um, it, it, it took. 20 years almost for party entrepreneurs to figure out just how far they could push the envelope. And I mean, I think that's another thing to bear in mind when you start changing the rules of the, and you see this in football too. And if you're a football fans, you know, mm -hmm. you start changing rules of the game. It takes a while, you know, to figure out exactly what, I, I mean, I think a good example of this would be when the, the, um, the NFL in the 1970s, uh, instituted the Mel Blunt rule for uh, illegal illegal contact, right? It was a rule that because Mel Blunt was frankly too good a defensive back. And so in the late 70s, they, you know, instituted a rule that you couldn't, you know, defensive backs couldn't touch receivers after mm -hmm. five yards. You know, it's, is it a coincidence that it, as shortly thereafter, you know, but it took a couple years for uh, San Francisco to develop into a rhythmic kind of like six yards down the field kind of game where they just drive the ball, drive. The, I mean, that's the way things go. They change the rules. It takes a while for football teams to figure out, okay, what do these rules means? How can we exploit them? And then other teams like mimicking and copying it. And, and, and the notion that you can just get rid of the filibuster and it, it speaks to, so those of you of a certain age, those of you who are Gen X, kids like i am will remember the early years of south park and um the underpants gnomes do you ever watch south park luke yeah 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 okay, the, so the, the the step uh, three profit right type. so step one collect underpants step two question mark question mark question mark step three profit there's these gnomes that take the kids underpants and that's their <laughs> strategy and i feel like the the left that's pushing for the elimination of this filibuster is very much in the underpants gnomes universe right now where they don't know what the world looks like after they steal the underpants but they're confident that if they steal them they will eventually profit and it's sort of the same idea here and if there were and look if the republicans repeal the filibuster in 2025 it will be the same thing what's that going to look like we don't know you know what are the incentives going to be on that will Su susan collins leave the caucus well she might you know who knows it'd be interesting so i think we'll leave things off here uh, if you have any final thoughts luke i will yield the floor to you yeah i i just i would say to people that um, a Senate rule, a set of Senate rules reflect the underlying will of a Senate majority and to always remember that and that um, politicians engage in performance around process when they don't have any good substantive news to share. Um, and so if somebody's really banging the drum on process, they're probably trying to distract you from somebody else, something else. Um, <laughs> That's not meant as, you know, uh, it's not to call them liars or bad or evil. It's just that, you know, politics is a business in which many, many things are out of your control, but everyone will blame you for it anyway. <laughs> and so you control the things that you can, like what you can say, what positions you take, 
how you are perceived by partisans in your area uh, to the greatest extent that you can. And so um, I'm not saying they're liars. I'm not saying you they're should just politicians. be that's what politics is right and and, and in so far as they've been that way and they're speaking to multiple audiences right exactly all the time they have a primary constituency they have a personal constituency they have a general election constituency and and those are the groups that they're constantly working within and trying to balance against one another i mean you will see these like these articles in the huffington post of you know, former cinema volunteer says she's Satan and I can't believe I helped get her elected, right? Well, like that person may genuinely feel that way right now, but I guarantee you that when time comes, if she gets through a primary and is up against a Republican, that voter's going to decide that, you know, better to work with, with cinema than let her suffer the consequences for ideological defection and allow a Republican to win. Yep, especially right? the kind of Republican that might win a primary in Arizona. Sure, sure. You know, you I mean, don't know who you're going to get in that? Yeah, one. you don't know exactly. And so yeah. the 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 reality is, and and I think we said this the last episode of the episode before, is that voters are really really good at being unforgiving. They're also really really good at being forgiving of their own past political preferences. <laughs> and so, um, you know, as a politician, you're always trapped between the electorate you're you're facing at this moment or the different constituencies you're facing at this moment and the constituencies you may face in the future. And in, in that sort of a circumstance, you know, there's never going to be a right answer, um, just lever, levels of wrong. And right. so you, you have to live with the knowledge that everything you do is going to make somebody mad. Somebody and you've got to trade off, am I losing votes in the future in exchange for you know, some mean calls now? Right, or am I saving my policy priorities and thus the the you know votes and interests of the people that I represent now in the sorry in the future, even though they're mad at me for doing it, right? Yeah, like if, know, if if Kristen Cinema was given um was given truth serum, what she would tell you is that a federal right to abortion hinges on the preservation of the filibuster, and that all the people mad at her need to wake up and be grown ups about that. Because she's very pro-choice, she's always been very pro-choice, mm -hmm. and that's never going to change, mm -hmm. right? And so she, if 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 this were a scenario in which she could be totally transparent and people would be adults and listen to her, she would say, "If you want there still to be a federal right to abortion in, in ten years, you need to protect the filibuster." But she can't say that right. because that's doomsaying that her partisans won't hear, right? And so instead, what she says is. Nature of the Senate, discursive things, relationships, bipartisanship, yada, yada, yada. She makes encomiums to these fairly abstract terms that can be – that are ciphers, that different people of different political dispositions can interpret in different ways because ultimately she's making the bet, the McCainist bet, if you will, because McCain was really good at this, mm -hmm. that she can do enough when she's in cycle to win a primary. And having won a primary, she will have the backing of a unified party in a general election. She may be right. She may be wrong. Mark Kelly is going the other direction. Right. He's saying the only way I'm going to win against headwinds in a midterm cycle is he probably thinks he knows he's got to get lucky and get a, a Republican candidate who this is not who, who's who's not highly electable. Right. Um, I don't think if he looks at the primary, he's going to see a whole lot of those right now. Right. 
Um, and then he's also going to need motivated base Democratic voter turnout because he's not going to get many crossover votes. Right. Right. So they're pursuing exactly diametrically opposed strategies in the same geography with slightly with with slightly staggered terms. It'll be interesting to see if one of them loses and one of them doesn't lose might foretell the future of the filibuster in the Senate. Yeah, it might also be a situation where they both lose for totally different reasons. Right. And they they could lose just because that them's the breaks. Them's the breaks, right? So, Sometimes you get a bad economy, and that's just the way it goes. That's the way it goes. So on that note, I think that's a good place to leave things. It's a good discussion. I hope um, you and our audience have enjoyed it. Um, before I let you go, we let you go. I'll just remind you that my book, James Madison, America's First Politician, is now on sale at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, and fine book retailers near you. And that if you are in so so inclined, you enjoy our podcast, which I'm reckoning you do because we have certainly uh, been talking for 90 minutes about the filibuster. And if you're still listening to this, my guess is you're a fan. Uh, but if you would like, and I've mentioned this before, I mentioned it again. If you buy a copy of my book and send me proof of purchase, I would be happy to send you a number of things if you're interested. We have uh, an old bonus series of bonus episodes that Luke and I did on the presidents where we ranked the presidents. It was very indulgent, but a very fun series <laughs> of podcasts. I can send that to you with proof of purchase. We are two thirds of the way through uh, recording our podcast bonus podcast on the democratic party. It's been a fun discussion so far. So if you would so inclined um, and those you can get if you buy a Kindle version or an Audible version or whatever electronic version other sellers offer. If you want, if you buy a hard copy, I would be willing personally to mail to you what is known as an autograph plate, which is this nice, basically a super fancy sticker that I had specially, specially made that I'll sign for you and you can put in the book on the, on the, on the uh, title page as a kind of stand-in for me actually sitting in front of you and signing it. Any of those things, all of those things, I would be happy to offer to you if you are so inclined to purchase the book. All you have to do is send me an email and my email address is the letter J, C-O-S-T, 241 at gmail.com. And uh, if you are so inclined to send me an email, I'll send those to you. Also, those of you who have purchased the book, uh, if you would be willing to indulge me, uh, by leaving me a five-star review on Amazon or um, any other, you know, Barnes and Noble or Goodreads. That would be amazing. I would be tremendously appreciative of that. Those of you who are inclined to send a one-star review, just keep that to yourself or send me a nasty email. Don't, <laughs> I'd appreciate that. So on that note, we will leave things off. So we have, uh, you know, we've have covered in this mini series, I would say, uh, a good deal about Congress. So I hope that you, our listeners, have enjoyed it. And I think we'll probably come back with maybe one or two more episodes just sort of thinking about Congress, maybe from a bigger picture. Yeah, we should do judicial nominations, I think. We should uh, ab- absolutely. Because, since, we're on the, since we're on the Senate now, that seems and, appropriate. Yes, and we've already talked about the, um, uh, the filibuster. You, and, and we didn't really talk about the judicial filibuster through the course of this and the elimination of the judicial filibuster. So we'll do that. Um, so we hope you have enjoyed this and we will see you or hopefully, you know, interact with you next time. So thanks for listening. 